Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, everyone. Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In the early 1860s, hundreds had been wiped out by disease. No family was left untouched. They had lived in the interior of British Columbia for thousands of years, and as they dealt with tragedies, settlers looking for land moved into their territory and needed a road, so a crew was sent ahead of them. When the crew arrived, they hired locals who were mourning, many of whom were starving. In the misery, they were denied food and even wages for the work they had done in helping the crew build the trail that cut through their land. And one night in April, They took matters into their own hands. I'm Craig Baird, this is Canadian History X, and today I'm sharing the story of the Chakotan Uprising. For thousands of years, the Chakotan people lived in the territory that expanded from the Pacific coast in the west to the Rocky Mountains in the east and present-day central British Columbia. Rich in ancient volcanoes, the area is known for obsidian, a volcanic glass that is formed when a source lava comes in contact with flowing water. Similar to flint, it was highly prized among the indigenous nations because it could be used to manufacture extremely sharp blades or arrowheads. The Chakotan were formidable warriors because obsidian was valuable, and any indigenous nation that controlled it had a measure of power among the other nations which is why they established a trading network around obsidian distribution within their territory, which was organized into autonomous bands. Families within these bands typically hunted, fished, and gathered herbs and roots independently through the year, and then came together a few times a year to cement their bond through drumming, storytelling, and community celebrations. Chakotan means people of the river because the flowing water was central to trading and food supplies. During the late summer, families gathered in large groups for the salmon runs. In the winter, they moved to pit houses that provided ample insulation near lakes where they were sheltered from the cold and wind, but could still ice fish. The connection to the land was strong as the Chakotan valued protection of the environment and nature. For thousands of years, the Chakotan lived their lives, defending their territory, and went about their business. Then, in the late 18th century, everything changed. British and American trade ships began to arrive to the coast of British Columbia in the 1780s and 1790s, looking for sea otter pelts. 
At first, these arrivals were a curiosity and a means to get European goods, but before long, Europeans ventured into Chicotan territory. The first European encounter was with Simon Fraser. On May 28, 1808, he and his party left Fort George, now called Prince George, to descend the Fraser River, which begins as a dripping spring in the Rocky Mountains near the border with Alberta and Jasper National Park. It moves north up to Prince George, where it gains strength from the creeks and rivers that flow into it. As it turns south from Prince George, it moves through the Okanagan, and just prior to the border with the United States, turns and empties into the Pacific Ocean at Vancouver as a mighty river. And it runs straight through Chicotan Territory. Simon Fraser reached Chicotan Territory around the first or second week of June 1808. He was especially adept at establishing good relations by having each nation alert the next nation of his arrival, helping to smooth his passage through the territories. And once Fraser had passed through Chicotan territory, things went back to normal. The only major change for the Chicotan was shifts away from obsidian and towards furs as Europeans were starting to settle on the coast. And that's how it remained for about the next 20 years. In 1827, the Hudson's Bay Company established an outpost within Chicotan territory. The Chicotan were unhappy with the strangers who entered their territory without permission. They refused to trade with the outpost, and it proved to be unsuccessful as a result. It was occupied, off and on, for the next 17 years until it was abandoned. But it didn't stop the fur trade. More fur traders entered Chicotan territory, and they brought with them an outbreak of whooping cough in 1845 and measles in 1850. Thankfully, the Fraser River Gold Rush had little impact on the Chicotan as it was outside their territory. There was little contact with gold miners who flooded into BC's interior in 1859 and 1860, but it did have an impact nonetheless. The arrival of 30,000 gold seekers brought with them smallpox. Smallpox reached the Canadian shores in the early 17th century with French settlers and missionaries. Over the next 200 years, it slowly spread past the Great Lakes and into the prairies before it met the Rocky Mountains. In British Columbia, smallpox came from the west, as settlers arrived on the Pacific coast from all over the world. On March 12, 1862, the brother Jonathan, a ship carrying 350 passengers, arrived in Victoria from San Francisco, many of whom sought their fortune on the Fraser River Valley, and aboard, one passenger was infected with smallpox. As everyone disembarked, a second passenger became infected and he traveled across the Strait of Georgia on another ship, the Otter, on March 22nd. From here, the virus spread like wildfire through the interior of British Columbia. It's estimated that the indigenous population of British Columbia was reduced by 62% by the time the disease had run its course. From June 1862 to January 1863, the Chicotan lost 1,500 people to the virus, two-thirds of their population. Half of the 14 bands within their territory were rendered extinct due to the outbreak. The outbreak decimated the population and caused a deep mistrust of anyone coming into their territory. They also believed that smallpox had been introduced for the purpose of taking land. And with no ability to read the room, a man named Alfred Waddington decided this was the best time to build a road straight through Chicotan territory. Alfred Waddington was one of the most prominent citizens within the new colonies of British Columbia and Vancouver Island, which was established in 1858, the same year he arrived from California where he ran a wholesale grocery business. 
In The Colony, he wrote Fraser Minds Vindicated, the first book ever published in the colony of Vancouver Island that was not from a government source. In 1860, he was elected as a representative to the House of Assembly of the colony of Vancouver Island. His platform consisted of women's rights, small government, and religious equality, and he went on to draft the charter of the city of Victoria, but turned down the nomination to be the city's first mayor. An optimist, he was quickly disillusioned with the government and resigned a year after being elected. In early 1862, Waddington lobbied the press and his political allies to build a wagon road from Butte Inlet, located on the BC coast, north of Vancouver, to Fort Alexandria, located in the Caribou region of central British Columbia. For the government, the road was seen as something that could help increase settlement as it would reduce land travel from 37 to 22 days and shorten the distance by about half. At the time, the Caribou Road was the only road into the interior. It began at the mouth of the Fraser River in the south and wound its way through 587 kilometers into the interior. In early 1863, the government approved the road and a draft agreement was signed. Construction began in mid-1863 and continued through the rest of the year before breaking for the winter. Things resumed again in March 1864, and by now, work crews were approaching Chakotan territory. Because of the smallpox outbreak a year earlier, the Chakotan had seen their population decimated and many were starving. Some were hired on the road but were not compensated. The road construction was deep in debt and there were little funds to pay laborers. This treatment, coupled with the incursion into their territory, led the Chakotan to declare war. Klatsasine was the war chief and he had first-hand knowledge of what it was like working for the road crew. He was highly respected for his abilities in battle and his family held land where a road crew had built a ferry without permission. He briefly worked as a packer for the road crew before he was treated poorly and left. On April 29, 1864, Chief Klatsasine arrived with a group of warriors at the ferry site along the Hamothko River where Tim Smith worked as a ferryman. Klatsasine asked for food and Smith refused. Klatsasine said, A white man took all our names down in a book and told us we should all die. As a response, Smith was killed. Klatsasine and his warriors then plundered the food reserves, a skiff was chopped up and a ferry boat was cast adrift. Smith's body was then thrown into the river and never found. The Chakotan Uprising had begun. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A day later, the Jagotan War Party found a work camp at dawn. Overnight, they had painted themselves in war paint, danced and drummed through an all-night ceremony. Six tents were in the camp with two to three men in each. As they slept, the Chakotan descended upon them and attacked. Three men, Peter Peterson, Edward Mosley, and Philip Buckley escaped. Mosley was the only man not injured in the attack. He said later he was not seen in the tent when the Chakotan pulled it down and shot his two bunkmates, Joseph Fielding and James Campbell. He kept quiet until the men moved on to another tent. He then fled into the river and escaped. After the attack at the work camp, the group moved six kilometers up the trail and found William Brewster and three of his work crew blazing a trail. All were killed. 
William Manning, a settler who lived nearby at Punsee Lake, was given the choice of exile or death, both of which he refused. The Jacotan Council was held, and a man named Tapit was chosen to execute Manning. Manning was one of the few settlers in Jacotan territory at the time. Overall, Manning had good relations with the Chicotan, hiring them to work at his ranch and supporting them in the winter when food was low. But he had built his ranch, log house, and garden on displaced camping ground and removed access to spring water for the Chicotan. He was warned about an attack by a Chicotan woman named Nancy, but he didn't heed the warning. Manning's body was found near where his house and fields had once stood. Both had been burned. Meanwhile, in the colonial government offices in Victoria, Lieutenant Governor Frederick Seymour had come into office in mid-April, two weeks before the first attack. On May 14th, Seymour called the incidents a near-rebellion and worried open war would result without a major government response, so he acted quickly. He sent Charles Brew and 28 men to Butte Inlet on HMS Ford. Seymour would accompany them on the journey. Brew was the Chief Gold Commissioner, a form of police chief in the colony of British Columbia. Well respected by those he led, the military party had trouble going forward and were unable to make their journey up the trail. The main reason was the tough terrain of British Columbia and the fact no one in the party knew the territory and had little help from the indigenous in finding their destination. But as a backup, Seymour also sent William Cox and a second military force, along with 50 men, most of whom had volunteered. Cox was told the expedition was to enforce the supremacy of the law and seize the culprits by force if necessary. They left on an overland route soon after Brew's military force left on their river route. Both military forces were paid a daily wage and provided with food. And the journey into the heart of the Chicotan territory was not easy on the overland route. The volunteers were not used to such hard terrain, and there was constant insubordination and near mutiny against Cox. They wandered aimlessly through the wilderness, camping in forts and often accidentally injuring each other with friendly fire. Along their wanderings, they burned down Chicotan homes at Punsey and Sutless along Nippo Lake. Meanwhile, Brew and his force of now 38 men boarded HMS Sutlej, attempting a second departure, and met Cox's forces on July 7th. As they made their way into Chicotan territory, a pack train led by Alexander MacDonald was warned about growing conflict in the area, but he ignored the concerns. MacDonald owned a ranch near the now-deceased William Manning. The pack train consisted of seven men, 28 load pack animals, and numerous other animals. They made camp at Tautistan, where they remained for several days. A second warning came from an indigenous man named Akpikur Moose, and this time, MacDonald listened and turned back the way they came, heading towards Bellacula, which is to the north along the BC coast. But it was too little, too late. They were ambushed soon after, and MacDonald was shot three times. Only five men survived the attack and made their way to Victoria, where they shared news of the attack. Meanwhile, within William Cox's group was a man named Donald McLean, who had served as chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company. He was the only one to have considerable knowledge of the territory and the Chicotan people. He'd also married a Chicotan woman. McLean was second in command to Cox as they moved into the territory. In mid-July, McLean led a scouting party to find Chicotan warriors. As they moved through the trees, a guide heard a rifle click and told McLean to get down. Before the warning could register, a bullet went straight through McLean's heart, killing him instantly. He was the last white person to die in the uprising. 
When news of McLean's death reached Victoria, the story had been exaggerated to say the entire military expedition was massacred by the Chicotan. The Victoria Daily Chronicle wrote, The wretches, not content with depriving the poor fellows of life, hacked and mutilated the bodies in a most shocking manner. Reports of cannibalism were also written into the newspapers as the story became sensationalized. The Victoria Daily Chronicle continued, I believe there is not one settler among us who would not heartily have volunteered to assist bringing vengeance upon the devoted heads of the fiends who had perpetrated this atrocity. Over 500 kilometers away, Chief Alexis was in Chicotan territory. He had spent years trading with the Hudson's Bay Company and was well liked and respected by both the Chicotan, settlers, and fur traders alike. When he first heard of the attacks against the road crews, he vowed publicly that his tribe would not protect the killers. For this reason, Cox attempted to employ Alexis as an interpreter and guide, but Alexis instead went into hiding as he feared retribution on all Chicotlans for the attacks. Eventually, Brew assured him with a message of peace. On July 20, 1864, Chief Alexis met with Cox, Brew, and Lieutenant Governor Seymour at a camp. Seymour told him that the government wanted peace talks with the warriors. Believing this, Alexis found eight warriors who led a force of 24 men and returned to Lieutenant Governor Seymour and the military force. As soon as they arrived, the eight men were immediately arrested and sent to Fort Alexandria. Upon the capture of the men, Seymour wrote, That Europeans should thus run down wild Indians and drive them to suicide or surrender in their own hunting grounds in the fruit and fish season appears to me, I confess, a little short of marvelous. One man was sent to trial in New Westminster, but escaped en route and was never caught. For the rest, their trial was set for the end of September 1864. Presiding over the trial was Judge Matthew Begbie. Within the colony of British Columbia, Begbie was a legend. He arrived in 1858 at the age of 39 and became known for his vigor and stamina. Each year he traveled in a circuit throughout the mountainous wilderness of the interior, holding court in every settled area in the colony. Sometimes court was simply held in the same tent Begbie was sleeping in and no matter the surroundings, he wore his judge robes in each court setting. Considered a fair man, later in his life he became known for his efforts to protect indigenous land and fishing rights and opposing discriminatory legislation against Chinese Canadians. He could also speak Chakotan and was respected by the Chakotan people. During the trial, the warriors argued they were not murdering, but waging war. The men were tried in four different trials over two days, and Begbie tended to be understanding of the situation of the Chicotan, and even let the men walk free while awaiting sentencing. A quick note before I continue, as you can imagine, Begbie used outdated language when he said in his sentencing, The Indians have, I believe, been most unjustly treated. If a sound discretion had been exercised towards them, I believe this outrage would not have been perpetrated. And while he understood and sympathized, it was his duty to enforce the law. He said, The blood of 21 whites calls for retribution. Begbie sentenced five men, Clatsasin, Tapet, Peel, and Chasus, to hang. The other two were to remain in prison for their role in the attacks. On October 26, 1864, 25 people came out to witness the execution at Quillnell's mouth in the largest mass hanging in Canadian history to that point. As they stood on the gallows and faced the crowd, Chessus remained silent, refusing to pray or say anything. The other men spoke and Tapit told his fellow warriors to have courage. He said, Tell the Chicotan to cease their anger against the whites. We're going to see the Great Father. 
Then a black cap was put on, the bolt was drawn, the trap fell, and the men dropped to their deaths. A year later, two Chakotan men named Ahan and Lutis, who were involved in the attacks, came out of hiding. They hoped to use furs to buy their freedom, which was a common practice among the Chakotan, but they quickly discovered the colonial government didn't work like that. Both men were brought to New Westminster and put on trial. Presiding over the trial was Judge Henry Pello Crease. Ahan stated he had shot some of the men but couldn't confirm that he had killed any, while Lutus stated he had not killed anyone except for one horse. Ahan was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was put to death on July 18, 1865. Lutus was convicted of third-degree murder and sentenced to death, but before Lutus could meet his maker at the gallows, Lieutenant Governor Seymour stepped in and pardoned him by saying, quote, A sufficient number of Indians has now perished on the scaffold to atone for the atrocities committed last year. Lutus is the only Chicotan warrior to receive clemency. After that, those who had a small part in the story went on with their lives. Judge Begbie eventually became the Chief Justice of British Columbia in 1871 and was knighted in 1875. He died in Victoria in 1894. Charles Brew only lived for a few years after the uprising before he died in the Caribou region in 1869 from acute rheumatism. William Cox became a judge known for unorthodox decisions. To resolve a mining dispute, he had the men involved run a foot race. In 1869, he left Canada and moved to San Francisco to be an artist, where he had limited success. Lieutenant Governor Frederick Seymour opposed the union of the colonies of British Columbia and Vancouver Island, and Victoria being the capital. He died in 1869 of dysentery while still in office. Two years later, the United Colonies of British Columbia and Vancouver Island joined Canada as one province. And Alfred Waddington's road was never completed. He asked for $50,000 from the colonial government for compensation over his financial losses, but this was declined. He returned to the legislature as an MLA and was the superintendent of schools for Vancouver Island. He died in 1872 from smallpox in Ottawa. As for the Chicotan Territory, it remains mostly untouched to this day and, over a century later, amends to the uprising story were to be made. In 1993, Colin Gableman, the Attorney General of British Columbia, issued an official policy for the hanging of the Chicotan warriors. Two decades later, in 2014, British Columbia Premier Christy Clark issued an official exoneration of the warriors when she stated, We confirm without reservation that these six Chicotan are fully exonerated of any crime or wrongdoing. She also acknowledged a long-held rumor that smallpox may have been introduced to the Chicotan on purpose for the goal of claiming their land. In 2018, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called the warriors heroes to their people. On March 26 of that year, he exonerated the warriors and current Chicotan chiefs were invited to the floor of the House of Commons for the apology. And on November 2nd, Justin Trudeau became the first Prime Minister of Canada to visit Chicotan land. He arrived riding a black horse to symbolize the ones ridden by the warriors, and he participated in a smudging ceremony. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Chicotan Uprising. Next week, we're looking at the Black Donnellys. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Chicotan War, National Post, Canadian Mysteries, Weekly British Colonist, Wikipedia, and the Victoria Daily Chronicle. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. 
and there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.